0: A discussion. I'm your host, Bill Reel. You know where to reach me. You know where to find me. So today I simply wanted to uh, jump right into the episode after just one little thought. Um, we are going to Utah, Salt Lake City in Provo on August 1st and 2nd for the FAIR conference. And we're excited about that. The uh, the panel discussion that I'm involved in is loss of faith, rekindling of faith. There will be other uh, people involved with that, uh, such as Don Bradley and Mike Ash, and so I'm quite excited about being able to sit with those uh, those brethren and to to talk about faith crisis in a way that hopefully is helpful. I also want to make an announcement that early in July, I don't know the date quite yet, but in Provo, Utah, Utah on uh, on early July, Terrell Givens and Rich, Richard Bushman are putting on a faith crisis fireside, and they've made it explicit that if you're a critic of the church, this isn't for you. If you're a member of the church who doesn't have a faith crisis, who uh, isn't struggling this isn't for you but if you are in the midst of the dark night of the soul that this uh this is a wonderful opportunity for you to um to hear two brethren who very well understand the paradigm of faith crisis and who very much offer things that are helpful i also just want to say too if you want to donate to the program and help us to keep things going help us to make sure that our equipment improves and help be able to fund things such as a trip to uh to the fair conference please go to mormondiscussion.podbean.com check out the uh paypal donation uh, link and uh, please make a donation to the to the podcast you don't know how much those donations help to keep things going and so i very much appreciate each of my listeners who have who have reached out in that way and i thank you today's episode is on the true and living church and i know we've kind of covered this before but i wanted to go through it in depth and give you a view of how i see things Because I think a lot of people who struggle with faith and have doubts, one of the things they begin to think about is how in the world can this one church be the one who is true and better and more correct than all the rest. And they begin thinking about the implications of that and what that means. A lot of my ideas, I'll be frank, I've stolen from Terrell Givens. Uh, As I've listened to him talk, there's ideas that he puts forth that make a lot of sense to me and give me ways in which to reconcile the gospel. And so if you feel like I'm plagiarizing him, I absolutely am. I'm giving him all the credit. I took uh, a lot of his ideas, a few of mine, meshed them all together into how I defined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the true and living church. So I'll start out by saying we sometimes mean when we say the church is true that it has all truth. There are members who feel that. If you were to go into a meeting and say, does the Church of Jesus Christ have all truth? There would be some who would raise their hand. And so one of the things people think when they say this is the true church, which we hear a lot, is that that means this church has all truth and others don't. But I don't think that's the case. We know all churches have some truth. President Hinckley stood up and and, and said in regards to investigators, bring all that you know that is true and see if we can add to it. So... There certainly are truths taught in other churches. We're even taught that in in our discussions with missionaries as investigators, that every church has bits and pieces of the puzzle. But then the missionaries make the mistake by saying our church has the whole puzzle. And I don't think that's the case either. So we say all churches have some truth, but I would add to that that no church, including ours, has all truth. And some members might go, Oh no, what did he just say? But if we look at Article Faith Number 9, right? There are, And part of that article of faith says that there are still yet many great and wonderful things yet to be revealed in the kingdom of God. And the question becomes, well, what is yet to be revealed? And the obvious answer we all have to just come to grips with is that there is more truth. There is more truth to come out. We also teach that prophets have keys. And so the next question to follow up with this is, do they have all keys? And some would say, yeah, they have all the keys, all the keys of the kingdom. Well, that's not true. Listen to Brigham Young. He said... I will mention one. We have not, neither can we receive here, the ordinance and the keys of the resurrection. They will be given to those who have passed off this stage of action and have received their bodies again, as many have already done and many more will. They will be ordained by those who hold the keys of the resurrection to go forth and resurrect the saints, just as we receive the ordinances of baptism and the keys of authority to baptize others for remission of their sins. This is one of the ordinances we cannot receive here. And there are many more. So Brigham Young speaks to the fact that there are other ordinances we haven't yet received, that each of those ordinances are presided over by someone holding keys, and that we don't have the keys to those ordinances either. And so we recognize right away that prophets have the keys necessary to officiate the kingdom of earth at this time in the church, but they do not have all keys. Now the next thing that uh, you'll hear people talk about is how people in the church are doing the work of God, building the kingdom, and that everybody outside the church needs to come into the church in order to accomplish that work. And Terrell Gibbons made this beautiful recognition of a scripture that I now have picked up on several times in other people speaking, but he was the first to talk about it for me, anyway. Doctrine and Covenants section 49. He shares a scripture where the Savior talks about repentance and who needs repentance, and then he finishes that uh, that section, Doctrine and Covenants section 49, verse 8, where he says, "I have reserved unto myself." Holy men, that ye know not of. Now think about the implications of that. Heavenly Father is talking to the prophet Joseph Smith. He's talking about repentance, those who need to repent. And then he makes a comment that there is an exception, that there are some who are to a point that they no longer need to repent. And he says that they are holy men, that he is reserved unto himself, that Joseph isn't even aware of. Now think about that for members of the church. There are people outside the church, holy men, that God is reserved unto Himself, who are doing a holy work that we don't even know about, and then we sometimes want to just draw these conclusions that that one has to be a Mormon, one has to be in the Church to accomplish God's work, and yet God Himself doesn't say that; He says the exact opposite. And so we've got to be very careful about how much importance or how much um, how special we make ourselves. I think sometimes we do it unknowingly, but I think sometimes Latter-day Saints can be arrogant and think that being a member of the Church makes them better than others. In the history of the Church, this is in, it says, 4, 78 through 80. So this must be book number 4 out of the set, page 78 through 80. And this is the Prophet Joseph Smith talking. And this is in regards to Mormonism being the only path to salvation. Lots of us think, as Latter-day Saints, that Mormonism is the only path to salvation. That being a Mormon increases one's odds at getting back to Heavenly Father. So in the History of the Church, 4, 78-80, this is what it says. Towards the close of his address, he remarked that he had been represented as pretending to be a savior, a worker of miracles, etc. All this was false. He made no such pretensions. He was but a man. He said, a plain, untutored man, seeking what he should do to be saved. He performed no miracles. He did not pretend to possess any such power. He closed, referring to the Mormon Bible which he said contained nothing inconsistent or conflicting with the Christian Bible. And he again repeated that all who would follow the precepts of the Bible, whether Mormon or not, would assuredly be saved. Now some Latter-day Saints will make this this split view of trying to separate salvation from exaltation, and saying that Joseph was essentially promising that all good Christians could be saved, but that one had to be a Mormon to be exalted, exalted. The problem with that is if we go to Gerald Lund's talk, Salvation by grace or works. In his talk, he very plainly says, we make a mistake in the church of trying to separate salvation and exaltation. And yet, very much, at least in the scriptures and and, in other times when we speak of salvation, it is the exaltation that the saints seek for. And so we try to departmentalize or compartmentalize these these ideas, and yet um, we really can't. When Joseph says that by adhering to the Bible, they'll most assuredly be saved, I'm pretty darn confident that he's talking about exaltation in the kingdom of God uh, and eternity spending eternity with God. Now there is a section in the Revelation that talks about the church and this is found in section or Revelation chapter 12 and this is in verse 4 5 and 6 and it's it's kind of a neat concept when we think about the apostasy In the church, we often describe it as authority being completely taken off the earth. That essentially, all resources left to administer the kingdom die, removed, evaporate, gone, whatever the case may be. And we're left with bits and pieces of truth, but nobody to administer it. In Revelation 12, starting in verse 4, it says, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, as Terrell Givens makes the comment that this woman represents the church, and that the church fled into the wilderness where she was nurtured of the Lord. And the way he reconciled this with some of these questions of apostasy was to understand that for instance, the three Nephites still walk the earth. Did they have authority with them still on the earth? Are we talking about an absolute, complete apostasy? One in which all individuals who could administer the gospel were removed from the earth, if the three Nephites are still walking it? What about John the Revelator? We're told that he is a a being who has not tasted of death yet. And so in that case, him still walking the earth, did we have a true and complete apostasy? And perhaps if we consider the woman representing the church is taken into the wilderness, she flees into the wilderness, where she is nurtured of the Lord, where she has a place prepared of God, and that he might feed her there 2,000, I'm sorry, a 1,203 score days. Now, that's a thought. So we say, okay, that's that's a thought. Does that hold any weight? And then we turn to Doctrine and Covenants, section 5. This is the very first section where, he, where Joseph Smith talks about the church coming forth. Right? Joseph's receiving revelations, he's doing other things, but all of a sudden now it's time for the church to be organized. And he says, the Lord says to Joseph in section 5, verse 14, And to none else will I grant this power, to receive this same testimony among this generation. In this the beginning of the rising up, And coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon, and fair as the sun, and terrible as the army with banners. Now think about the repercussions of this. So the church never completely left the earth. It retreated into the wilderness, where it essentially was hidden from the world, where it was nurtured of the Lord, where it prepared for a certain time, until it shall come forth again out of the wilderness. And once we recognize this, it allows us to see that God, even during the apostasy, is still, working to accomplish his work in glory to bring to to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Now, let's go back to what Joseph was told in the first vision. In the first vision, Joseph says, I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And so sometimes we we want to overextend what the Lord told Joseph. We want to say that Joseph thought all the ministers were, were corrupt, and they were an abomination in his sight. But what does he tell Joseph? What is the abomination in the Savior's sight? It was the other churches? No. Was it the other ministers? No. It was their creeds. The Savior points out his dislike of creeds. Which bind him to man-made labels and beliefs. In other words, it's the creeds that determine what the relationship is between Christ and God. Can you just picture Heavenly Father and the Savior looking down and, and chuckling over the fact that there's these men in these councils in the second, third, and fourth centuries who are, who are debating and deciding and making it official what the substance of God is and what His relationship is to His Son and to the Holy Ghost. And then you can begin to understand why Heavenly Father does not like creeds, why the Savior does not like creeds. So it is their creeds that were an abomination. He also points out that the ministers deny his power, his priesthood. They deny revelation. They deny the fact that God still speaks to man. That's the whole point of when Joseph goes back after having his vision, why some of the ministers criticize him. Because they say that God no longer speaks to people in this way. They deny his power. They draw near to me with their lips. So they teach correct principles, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for the doctrines, the commandments of men. In other words, those things that are popular, those things that keep people asking them to come back and to keep preaching. Having a form of godliness, so they're similar, they're close, but they deny the power thereof. They deny living revelation. They deny his authority. Joseph Worthlin, talking about, in his talk, concern for the One, talking about members of the church, said this, Tied to this misconception is the erroneous belief that all members of the church look, talk, and be alike. The Lord did not people the earth with a vibrant orchestra of personalities, only to value the piccolos of the world. Every instrument is precious, and adds to the complex beauty of the symphony. All of Heavenly Father's children are different in some degree, yet each has his own beautiful sound, and adds depth and richness to the whole. I wonder sometimes, in fact, I'm I'm fairly comfortable in saying that my stance is set on a position that God is working with every faith of the world, every church in the world, that seeks to do good, to help him accomplish his work. When I consider that Moses one hundred thirty nine says, And this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, it only seems natural that God would use any vehicle possible to refine his children, to share with them his grace to give them opportunities to become more like him. And I sometimes wonder if we could overarch this concept of the orchestra to also apply to the churches of the world, that each of them are a different instrument, and that God is accomplishing his work as a whole through more than just ours. I also sometimes think that we are overzealous in thinking that this work entails converting the majority of the world. We become concerned over how many millions have joined the church. Every time there's a new number, we... we, want to make a big deal of, of saying it in our meetings and sharing it with everybody. While we are near, somewhere close to, 15 million members of the church, do we recognize that only consist of 0.2% of the population? Think about that. 7 billion people in the world, 14 million of them are Latter-day Saints. Sometimes we just feel like, leading up to the millennium, that everybody's going to join the church. I was just in a meeting last week where the members of, of my ward were making a big deal of how this work has to go forward, and how people have to join uh, in huge numbers leading up to the second coming. I don't think that will ever be the case. I don't think the church will ever make up a large percentage of the population leading up to the second coming. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing missionary work. Sometimes if we pose that type of paradigm, people will lose interest in conversion. But we must recognize that every soul is great in the eyes of God. And that even to go from 0.2% of the population to 0.4% of the population would mean doubling our number from 14 million or 15 million to 28 or 30 million members. And so even with a slight growth in the percentage, we make a huge growth in those who are affected by having an opportunity to be in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we'll get to why that's important. Wilford Woodruff quoted Brother Joseph as saying, When we get together, the prophet called upon the elders of Israel with him to bear testimony of this work. When they got through, the prophet said, Brethren, I have been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here tonight. But I want to say to you before the Lord that you know no more concerning the destinies of the church and the kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. I was rather surprised. He said, It is only a little handful of priesthood you see here tonight. But this church will fill North and South America. It will fill the world. Now, if it will fill the world, and we just talked about the percentages, this is, the, this is the quote people use to talk about how the church will be overwhelmed by membership. The world will be overwhelmed by membership uh, in, from members in the church. And I don't think that's what it means. While we are such a small percentage, and I, I think it almost impossible for that number to ever be uh, a significant percentage of the, the world population that are members of the church, at least not until after the second coming. I also recognize that Joseph promised the brethren that the church would fill North and South America, that it would fill the world. And oftentimes, if we if we think about it, the number of wards and stakes, access to temples, access access to a priesthood holder somewhere, if we look at the world that way, we recognize that the church is indeed filling the world. At one time, there was one or two stakes. When Joseph made this quote, there perhaps was one in Kirtland. Today, there are 2,800 stakes in 600 districts. And a district is like a stake, except it's made up of branches instead of wards. At that time, the first temple was underway in Kirtland. Today, there are over 170 built, announced in the works in one form or another. The church is indeed filling the world. And again, remember that even 0.4% is doubling the number. Does membership in the church give one a statistically improved chance at salvation? This is a question I ask members all the time to get them thinking. Does membership in the church give one a statistically improved chance at salvation? In other words, does God favor his Mormon children, the 0.2%, more than the other children, the 99.8? You know, Up in the preexistence, he said, Okay, little Johnny, I love you more than the rest, so I'm sending you down to make sure that you're a Mormon. Now, the rest of you, mm, sorry about your luck. It's going to be harder for you. I don't buy that. Again, I think God is trying to save all of his children. So what does it mean for the church to be true? The church has to be true in the sense that it contains the full doctrine of Christ. Does the church have the full doctrine of Christ, faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, temple ordinances, and the encouragement to endure to the end? The church balances grace and works. It provides the most effective path to be refined or sanctified. What other church gives responsibilities to every member? What other church places its members in a geographic location where the only way they can participate is if they go to the church they're assigned to? Where they going to be in a congregation with people that they don't get along with, or struggle with, or don't see eye to eye with. To me, this church pushes us to be sanctified. What other church asks so much of its members? When we recognize that the goal is to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and that in doing that, we ourselves are changed to become like Christ, we begin to grasp what it means for the church to be true. The follow-up is what does it mean for the church to be living? God has established this church. He may be working through the others. But he has established this church. He has placed in it a living prophet, in living apostles. He has appointed this church as the stewards of the living ordinances, which all, both living and dead, will receive. This church is living and breathing with revelation given from God to all his children. That living revelation given to the entire world through living of prophets and living apostles, occurs through this church and none other. Now don't mistake me. I'm certainly comfortable with recognizing that all of God's children have a right to and the ability to receive revelation. But when revelation will be given to the world as a whole, he'll do so through his living church. So to me, that's what it means when I say the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, is the true and living church upon the earth. And I hope that that gives you flexibility to see it that way too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. God bless and make the Lord warm your shoulders.